0: We're going to look at the whole of Leviticus 18 to 20. Um, As I said before, I'm not going to read all of that. I'm just going to read a section, a selection of chunks. I'm going to top and tail each chapter, essentially, and leave leave you to glance over the the sections in the middle for yourself. Um, So why don't I start with that? Um, Leviticus 18, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. And then from verse 24. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things. For although all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practised before you came. And do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. And then chapter 19, will we read 1 to 12. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It should be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will not be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because they have desecrated what is holy to the Lord. They must be cut off from their people. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field, or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time, or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And then picking up again at verse 30. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Stand up in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly and revere your God. I am the Lord. I've lost my place. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not ill-treat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Do not use dishonest scale standards when measuring length, weight or quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights, an honest Epha and an honest hymn. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Keep all my decrees and all my laws and follow them. I am the Lord. And then finally, chapter 20, we'll read 1 to 8 and 22 to 26. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Any Israelite or any foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Moloch is to be put to death. The members of the community are to stone him. I myself will set my face against him and will cut him off from his people. For by sacrificing his children to Moloch he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. If the members of the community close their eyes when that man sacrifices one of his children to Moloch and if they fail to put him to death, I myself will set my face against him and his family and will cut them off from their people together with all who follow him in prostituting themselves to Moloch. I will set my face against anyone who turns to mediums and spiritists to prostitute themselves by following them and I will cut them off from their people. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. And verse 22. Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them, so that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I am going to drive out before you. Because they did all these things, I abhorred them. But I said to you, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey, I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. You must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals and between unclean and clean birds. Do not defile yourselves by any animal or bird or anything that moves along the ground, those that I have set apart as unclean for you. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Somehow, Dan and Dave always give me the easy passages to speak on. Um, If you managed to scan through the whole of those three chapters earlier, then I'm sure there were some parts that stood out for you as being difficult, particularly to our modern eyes. And perhaps the death sentences, or the sense of absolute authority with, with a lack of moral relativism that we get here almost certainly, if you did read through all of it, you will have been struck by the attitude to homosexuality. And you'll be aware that that will outrage many around us. It may put our hackles up too. Um, We just have about half an hour now. So I I cannot hope to drill deep into everything here. Um, What I'd like to do instead is to present an overview, a framework to look at a passage like this with. and Pull out three themes so that when we look back over this kind of thing for ourselves, or when we encounter it in our own Bible reading, we're better equipped to make sense of them. So, we're going to look for principles behind the passage, and I want to show you as well some of its limitations, things that I think it's not saying, and I want to consider as well how we get to read this with new covenant eyes, when when we look at it through the lens of Jesus. What are the, the challenges and encouragements here for our hearts? all of that is going to be quite hard work Uh, so why don't we pray to start with Father God you are the one who is holy you are the almighty one you are pure and good we cannot hope to encounter you or to glimpse your face in this passage without your help so we ask you please put your spirit at work Here among us now, give me the right words to say, give us receptive hearts, and teach us now about yourself, please. Amen. Context is absolutely crucial. If we read this passage in isolation and come at it without the surrounding reading, it will seem to us like it's just trying to set out a universal morality, Uh, a picture of what is right and wrong, and and demanding that we put to death those who don't follow it. That, I think, is not what this is about. Um, If you've been with us throughout this series on Leviticus, you'll know that Dave Dent started us off with the idea that the whole of the book is structured like a chiasm. So it's got a central moment in chapter 16, and then there's symmetry either side of that in the lead-up to it and what comes afterwards. The way chiasms like that work is often that they take us on a journey to a crucial big idea. They take us to a a mountaintop encounter, a core idea about God, and then as they bring us back to -to day-to-day life, they show how that plays out. So, we looked at chapter 16, which is the focus of Leviticus, last week. And this evening's passage stands in parallel with with what Dan told us about two weeks ago. Dan was looking at chapters 13 to 15 with us, and particularly at chapter 14. Uh, And there, God gives Moses regulations for how the people can come into the camp of the Holy God. Even even if they've been defiled by a skin disease or a mould or uncleanness from a bodily discharge... Those were marks of impurity and dirtiness which would isolate them from the people around them. And God tells Moses how they can be cleansed and washed clean and welcomed back into his camp out of separation. Moses' God purifies his people and welcomes them back to him. And then last week we had the great day of atonement. The massive annual sacrifice at the heart of the Old Testament law, where God gives his high priest a way to make right the people's sin. He gives a way for them to be good again. And so this week's passage, these three chapters, they deal with the question of what does it look like after that? For the people of God, who have been welcomed back into the camp, who have been cleansed of what defiled them, who have been fully atoned for, what does it look like for them to live in the presence of their holy God? I think that's the central question. And so, a few quick side notes. Um, Firstly, this is not presented as a universal morality. We will get it wrong If we read it, thinking that the idea is that these are good things that anyone will agree to. In fact, it's made very clear within this passage, in chapter 18, verse 3, in verse 24, and chapter 20, verse 23, that much of what was forbidden here was common practice in the other nations around them, especially in those that the Lord was driving out of Canaan ahead of them. This is not universal morality. And it's not arrived at through ethical reasoning. Rather, following these laws is what will mark Israel as different to others. But they're not called to apply the rules to other people outside their boundaries. And I think only a handful of the rules actually expi- apply explicitly to foreigners living amongst them. So it's not a universal morality. Secondly, it's not all moral law. There is a weird blend here, especially in chapter 19. It reiterates big law, big moral principles, like some of the Ten Commandments. Do not lie. Do not steal. And then virtually in the same breath you get, don't plant your field with two kinds of seed. Don't wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Maybe we look down and start to sweat. If you remember Dan's sermon two weeks ago, He suggested that much of these laws of purity and cleanliness were intended as pictures. They were teaching aids to help us grasp what God is like. To help us grasp the idea of God's purity and holiness. And and so the question here is not what is morally right and wrong, but what does it look like for me? As someone who has had atonement made for them to live as an Israelite in God's camp. Third side note is we should recognise this is uncompromising and offensive. Um, there's a few things. It, it's addressed to men and not to women. It advocates a death penalty. It flatly forbids homosexual intercourse. There is a lot here that will get up people's noses and, and may annoy us. I'm, I'm not going to attempt to address those issues in the short time that we have tonight. They require careful reading, a broad scope of scripture to do them justice. And if those are particular blocks for you that will make it hard for you to engage with this passage, then, then let me encourage you, come and talk to me or, or one of us afterwards and wrestle with some of these ideas. But in the meantime, I don't think those are the focus of what's going on here. So let's get into it. What does it look like to live as God's people? Three chapters. Chapter 18 sets out primarily sexual relationships that are forbidden, but it includes in there child sacrifice to Moloch. Chapter 19 is more positive. It sets out the kind of patterns that God's people are to live by. It shows how they should treat each other, how they should treat the poor and foreigners among them and the land and its crops. And then chapter 20 circles back around to what is forbidden. It sets the penalties that they'll need to enact, the punishments when law is broken. Now, rather than deal with those as three separate chunks, I, I just want to try and pull together three themes that I think run throughout them. The first is this. It's written to a whole people. So, if you read through chapter 18, it's very clear that this is not advocating an individualistic, live-for-yourself lifestyle, never mind the consequences for others. I think that's some of what it's about. There there are social consequences to sexual sin, and those matter. So God's people are not to just be living it up and sowing their wild oats. But on the other hand, nor is it a pattern of individual, private faith, or just one-to-one interaction with God, with each Israelite being responsible for their own conscience. The law set out here is a whole people thing, and that's important. At the Day of Atonement in chapter 16, one priest makes a single sacrifice for the whole nation. They are bound together in their faith. It has pleased the God of Israel to call the people to his name and to forge them into a unified body, into a nation for himself. And so we see if we scan through these chapters that a lot of it is about social interaction. We see that in chapter 18. The problem with many of the forbidden sexual practices is their consequence for family relationships. So, 18 verse 6 is categorical. I am the Lord. It is wrong to approach a close relative to have sex. And so, obviously in verse 7, it is wrong to have sex with your parents. But you see that that's coupled with another reason. Do not dishonour your father like that. The family relationship that God gives them between father and child is a picture. It's a microcosm of relationship between God and his people. Don't show it contempt. Or in verse 10 we get the reverse. Don't sleep with your grandchild. It shouldn't (laughs) need saying. But but why is it said particularly here? Because that will dishonour you. It will tear down the picture of fatherhood. What message will you teach to your family and your people about the God who institutes family relationships? And again in verse 8 or 14 or 16, we see that beyond the straightforward wrongness, intruding on someone else's marriage dishonours them. It does lasting damage. It will cause hurt and division within the family that God has forged on the Day of Atonement. And that is not how his people are to be. They are to be a whole people, unified by this Day of Atonement, unified for God. We see it again throughout chapter 19. So many of the laws in chapter 19 are social. They're about horizontal interactions with each other. So, verse 9 and 10 of chapter 19 are sort of early social security in a society which doesn't even have universal credit. They're they're to leave the gleanings in the fields so that the poor can get food. Verse 11 to 13, don't cheat or defraud each other. Verse 14 to 16, don't persecute or corrupt each other. But rather, this is striking, in verses 17 to 18... Rebuke your neighbour frankly. Don't don't hold out for vengeance. Rather, love your neighbour by turning them back to God. Skipping several, we can jump ahead to verse 32. I like that more and more as I get older. Treat your elders with respect. Verse 33, 34. Be generous to the outsider. Remembering that the Israelites were once outsiders themselves. It's a whole people thing. They are to be a people of God who treat each other well because that is how the Lord has treated them and because the glory of God is shown in the family nation that he's forming. And the harder side of that is chapter 20. That to are a whole people, a family born through the Day of Atonement but the sin that he warns them against is so profoundly dangerous to that family relationship that they cannot leave it unchecked. So, in verses 1 to 5 and 27 to 28 of chapter 20, we see that the Lord is absolutely uncompromising. Child sacrifice, worship of Molech, he considers that to be utterly vile. He will not tolerate it amongst his people, it's poisonous to them. And similarly, the consulting of mediums and spiritists are turning to black magic for guidance instead of to their God. He says, root it out. Those people are to be stoned by the community. Collectively, you are to destroy it. That must not happen amongst you. And if you won't, God says he himself will. Verse 5, I myself will set my face against him and his family and will cut them off from their people together with all who follow him. He will excise it like a tumour. They are to be a unified body. And so they need to take threats to that unity seriously. And we see that further in chapter 20 in a frightening set of verses, 8 to 21 those who disrupt the family of God, those who curse their parents or commit egregious sexual sin, face death. The Lord says their blood is on their own head. And the family around them are not to tolerate it. Lesser infractions don't face death, but they are still to be removed from their people, in verse 17. See, if the Israelites are to live in the camp of God, as those for whom atonement has been made, then they are to be a people of God. They have to treat each other well. They mustn't cause damage through egregious sin. They're to call each other back to God with love and frank rebuke. But they're also to protect the people of God by taking sin as seriously as he does. Which is a frightening responsibility. I have to say, I I think that the principles behind this translate through into the new covenant. Not the letter of the law, and not the death penalty, but the principles behind it stand. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Yes, for us, the question of our faith is between us and God. But we are made and intended for community living. We need a church around us. We need people to teach us and help us and to hold us accountable. And we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters to love them and serve them and to take sin seriously. And so to challenge each other in love when we go wrong which is something that churches have often done very badly and have caused great hurt. And there are people within our congregation who have suffered from that elsewhere. But to fail to challenge fellow believers when we see them compromising themselves is to fail to love them. It's to fail to value them as part of God's people. I have a a good friend from university who sings the praises of one Christian friend not me, sadly. One friend out of all of us took him aside and challenged him when he slipped into serious sexual sin. And he sees that as a potentially life-saving, soul-saving conversation that others like me had failed to start. How does that horizontal responsibility to the whole people of God sit with you? There to be a whole people of God. And secondly, if you'll forgive the pun, they are to be a holy people. See what I did there? It's uh, terrible. Um, this is more obvious, I think. they to be a holy people to God. Do you see the drumbeat that drives through these three chapters and, and goes on throughout Leviticus? I am the Lord. Look at 18 verses 1 to 5. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Verse 4, you must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for whoever obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Again and again, this is the primary justification for any of his rules. Verse 6, don't commit sexual sin, because I am the Lord. Verse 21, don't turn to Molech. I am the Lord. Chapter 19, verse 2, one of the the key verses here. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then again throughout chapter 19, verse 3, respect your parents and the Sabbath. I am the Lord. Verse 4, don't turn to idols. I am the Lord. Verse 10, provide for the poor. I am the Lord your God. Verses 23 to 25, wait until the fifth year before you take fruit from a tree. I am the Lord your God. Verse 37, keep all my decrees and all my laws and follow them. I am the Lord. That's just a few of them. There's loads more. But maybe the most encouraging is the other key verse, chapter 20, verse 7 and 8 consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. I think what's being said is that the simple reason that they are to behave in these ways which set them apart from the rest of the world is because they have seen something of God's character. If they are to be a people who are welcomed back into the camp of God, a people for whom atonement has been made, then they have to be able to live in a way that their God won't reject. In 18 verse 26 to 28, he tells them flatly that they are not to live like the Canaanites did before them. If they do, as a holy God, he will drive them out. Which isn't unreasonable. Now, I am a married man. This is a good thing. But it does put requirements on my lifestyle. There are levels of behaviour that I could get away with as a single man in my own home, but I want Ruth to share that home with me. And so because of what I know of her character, there are implications on how I will spend my time, or my money, or how much I will do the washing up, or just wash. And, And frankly, if I behave in a way that is sufficiently offensive to her, our marriage will collapse. In the same way, if the Israelites are to take advantage of living in the camp of God, the Saviour God, the Holy God, who has rescued them from Egypt with mighty works, and who feeds and waters them miraculously through their wanderings, if they're going to live in his camp, then having seen something of his character, they cannot live in such a way that he will be disgusted. They cannot worship idols instead of him they cannot live with him and then treat each other with contempt through adultery or, or with malice and deception he is a holy god and so 19 verse 2 they need to be holy they need to be set apart from the world to coexist with him that's quite a challenge what's better though is 20 verse 7 he's the holy god who makes his people holy In this context, I think that means that through the atoning sacrifice from chapter 16, he makes them clean and holy. But also through giving them his law, he shows them how to live in a way that is pleasing to him, that he defines as being holy. He defines them as holy. He teaches them with pictures of his purity. Pictures like the garments they're to wear and the way they are to farm. He even gives them ways to live that will bring his blessing. 19 verse 24 and 25. Leave the first fruits of your farming to the Lord. Give him thanks and he will increase your harvest. 19 verse 30. Observe his Sabbaths. Why? Because then you'll enjoy his rest. 18 verse 5 sums it up. Keep my decrees and laws for whoever obeys them will live by them. To live in the presence of a holy God, they need to be holy to him. Holy like him. Thirdly then, and and briefly, because I, I think it is just a passing point. They need to be a holy people in the world. Several times in these chapters, the Lord commands Israel to be different the nations from which they've been called. So chapter 20 verse 24. I said to you, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. You must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals, and between clean and unclean birds. Do not defile yourselves by any animal or bird or anything that moves along the ground Those which I have set apart as unclean for you, you are to be holy to me, because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. There's a, a little bit here, a little snippet of a theme which then develops throughout Scripture, that they will be visible in the world. They are identified and exposed to ridicule through the laws of cleanliness in their food and clothing and action. So that the Israelites are always going to be easily marked out from others around them. So the law pictures which they're given to help them understand the purity and holiness of their God. Those are also being given to their neighbours. A holy nation for God in the world. Where his generosity and wonders will be made visible. Just as he promised Abraham long ago. So that's what I think is going on in chapter 18 to 20. Through Moses, God is saying to his people, this is what it will look like for you to come into my camp and live under my blessing as those for whom atonement has been made. It's not a long ethical argument. It is simply, be holy because I am holy. Come and live with me. We need to see it as invitation, as a pattern for life with God, not harsh judgment. And so the question for us is how do we read this with New Testament minds? And the first thing we have to say is that we read it knowing that it fails. So this must have been an exciting time for the Israelites. They were being formed into a holy nation and given the law of how they were going to live in relationship with God in the promised land. But as we read on through the Old Testament, we we see that they never managed to live by these principles. They seduce themselves away from it again and again and so they are not able to live in his tents or around his temple and they end up in exile. Molech worship should have been stamped out here. But it turns up again and again through the prophets and the accounts of the kings. As do injustice and adultery and faithlessness, even in the life of great King David. As we read Romans, we see it's not the law that is flawed, but rather God's holy law, his good pattern, shines a spotlight on how unholy and how disobedient and not like him his people really are. They have stony and unresponsive hearts. They need a different way to be made clean. In the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel seems to have been written particularly with the Jewish people in mind. And Matthew takes pains to show how Jesus picks up on these ideas. So in Matthew 23, Jesus pans the Pharisees, the religious elite who tried to live by these principles. He says that as they try to enforce the law on others, they make it a cumbersome burden to their people while not entering the kingdom themselves. He calls them whitewashed tombs, law-abiding on the surface, but dead and unclean at their core. Or in Matthew 19, that rich young man comes to Jesus. He's confident he's kept all of the law from childhood. He asks, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And he goes away sad, Because with one instruction, Jesus shows him that despite his rigid law-keeping, he values his money more highly than entering God's camp. Or the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus takes the law far beyond what is written. And he shows us that anger equates to murder in God's eyes. A lustful glance is like adultery. And so he strips away from us any illusion that we could live safely following this pattern as God's people. Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, not just be holy, but be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do you measure up to that? We need a better way to encounter a holy God. And as we've seen again and again through this series, that better way, we find it in Christ. So last week we heard of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, that imperfect yearly pretense that God's people were being made clean enough to enter his courts. And thankfully Dave reminded us about Christ's perfect once-for-all sacrifice at the cross, where the Lamb's blood was shed to make atonement for my sins. This week we look at the law that was given... To show God's redeemed people how to live in his presence. And we might first despair knowing that we can't meet the standard. But then we can remember he has given us his spirit. His counsellor in his people's hearts to teach and lead in following a better law. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. God promises his people, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. He is the holy God who makes his people holy and that's our promise so let me finish with encouragement and challenge the encouragement is simple friends if you are believers then as we heard last week Christ's perfect sacrifice has once and for all opened a way for his people back into God's presence and unlike Old Testament Israel we then don't need to approach that God with terror or with a veil to protect us. As we've been hearing in the mornings from 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To be a believer is to have in Jesus everything that this Old Testament picture points towards. It is to have been redeemed being atoned for, and then to know with unshakable confidence that we stand before our Lord clothed in Christ's righteousness. The garments of our shame have been taken away and we've been dressed like him. This is the God who makes his people holy. So if you've trusted Jesus, then rejoice and dwell on that. And know with confidence that your standing before the Father has been assured. In his eyes, our righteousness surpasses the requirements of this law. And his spirit has been poured out generously so that all those areas of your life that don't match up will gradually be redeemed and transformed and sanctified. He is remaking his people in his image. That's great. There is still the challenge too. There is the healthy question to ask. The way has been opened up back to your father. Do I live accordingly? What would it look like for me to live now as one who has access to that holy God? How do I match up? In Christ, I live free from the stipulations of Old Testament law, but Jesus says in Mark chapter 9 if your hand or foot or eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Do I take sin in my life that seriously? And the answer is no. Not often. Honestly, my heart wanders rapidly towards adultery, my mind to prideful anger. I I don't feel the Leviticus 19 love and care for my brothers and sisters. I, I am quick to be seduced by other gods. Not Molech, but money, beer, leisure. How about you? Given free access to God's tents, how are you responding to the call to imitate him in holiness? Where do you fall down? What is it that you need to cut out and change? Take heart, brothers and sisters. In Christ, all God's promises are made certain. We can bring our struggles to that holy God and ask for his spirit at work in us to teach and change us and lead us to fullness of life. Let's pray. Father God, your holiness surpasses what we can understand. Your goodness and greatness. We do not match up to that. In Jesus, you have revealed yourself completely. And in Jesus, you have provided us a way to encounter you, a way to come to know you, a way to be free from the the shame of our sin and the consequences of what we do wrong. Father God, please fill our eyes with the wonder of what we see. Capture our hearts with with marvel at your holiness. And challenge and teach us then to live accordingly. To become imitators of your way. Part of your holy body, the church that has been called to, to live for you. And to witness to you in this world. Amen.